Like Josh said, we're going to be in Revelation 2, so if you're not there, get there, because we're about to just jump right in. Uh, my name's Chris, I'm an intern here, and I am very excited to do this, um, to just open up the Word of God and to just, I don't know, talk for a little bit and sort of uh, try to communicate uh, just how this can be applicable today and, uh, you know, just present Jesus in full view for y'all. Um, and hopefully y'all get a lot out of it as I did in researching. So uh, we are working our way through the seven letters to the churches in Asia. And uh, these letters are all written to these churches by Jesus. Um, they're recorded by John, uh, and uh, all seven of them are two specific churches, but they can also be applied to uh, just the big capital C church, the universal church. Um, so when we're going through it, I'm going to break down a lot of the historical context that's happening in this church um, and a lot of the circumstances that they're going through that makes this letter very unique for them. Um, But then we're going to try to see what we can draw out of it for ourselves and for uh, just Christians everywhere. So, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, I'm going to start in verse 8 and then end in 11. So 8 through 11. And to the church, or into the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have the tribulation. Uh, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Um, So each one of these letters that we're going to be going through has six parts to them. Um, They all pretty much follow the same format. Um, So we're going to go through one through six, all of them, uh, and then talk about the application. So the first part is the two. This is a letter written to the church in Smyrna. In verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. So Smyrna, we're going to look at who Smyrna is, what they're going through, all that. So Smyrna, uh, they are a now non-existent town in uh, present-day Turkey. It's modern-day Izmir, and it's about 40 miles due north of Ephesus, which is the city we talked about last week. Um, It was a very important port city, which we'll talk about uh, a little further. And uh, they were big into academics. It was the birthplace, or the alleged birthplace of Homer, the Greek writer. And uh, they 
thrived in the fields of science and uh, medicine. So this was a very affluent city, um, and they they took seriously, I guess, that that call to enlightenment and all that's involved there. Um, so there are three important points about the city of Smyrna that I'd like to cover. The first one is its beauty and its wealth. Um, it was known for its beautiful architecture, its buildings. Um, it had paved roads, which was a big deal in that uh, time. And also just the nature was stunning. It had just groves of beautiful trees, and it was on the, on the sea right there. So it was known for all of this uh, just by the entire region. Like when you heard the name Smyrna, you knew it was beautiful. And uh, because it was a port city, it was the center for a lot of trade and commerce. And uh, as that sort of built, uh, they experienced an economic boom in Smyrna. And uh, by the time this book, this letter right here was written, uh, their population was probably about 250,000 people. Um, So it was very rich, very beautiful. Um, The second point we want to talk about is the relationship that Smyrna had with Rome. Um, Smyrna as a whole, as a city, prided itself on being a faithful and loyal ally uh, to the Roman government. Uh, They were considered, along with uh, Pergagnum and uh, Ephesus, we'll talk about the first one next week, but they were considered uh, within those three. That group was considered the first of Asia, and that was referring to its loyalty to Rome. Um, They were constantly jockeying for position to be seen as the most loyal, the most dedicated to serving the Roman government at the time. Um, And due to this, uh, Smyrna itself sort of became a central hub for emperor worship and, um, and just idolatry of that sort. So... They were uh, constantly trying to one-up every other city in uh, their dedication to Rome. So they started worshiping both deceased emperors and living emperors. They were actually granted permission to build a temple to the living emperor Tiberius, even though he refused um, or just looked down on the fact that people were worshiping him as a living deity. Um, And... It got to the point where in Smyrna, every citizen was legally required to burn incense on the altar of Caesar and declare Caesar as Lord. Um, And if they did not, then they could be punished either by imprisonment or death. Um, So as you can think, or as you would sort of assume, it was an extremely tough place to be a Christian Uh, And that's the third point. There was extreme Christian persecution in Smyrna. Um, Because of the emperor worship and and Christians' refusals to sort of denounce Jesus as Savior, um, they just had a very tough life, a very hard time um, if they were known as Christians. Um, Another thing that sort of added to the persecution was that There was a very sizable Jewish population at the time in Smyrna. Um, Because of the relationship between the Jews and the Romans, uh, the Jews were granted a freedom uh, of sorts to practice 
their religion without being persecuted. Um, and for the longest time after Christianity was established, they sort of fit under the Jewish umbrella. And Josh sort of mentioned this last week. Um, they were sort of seen as a, a sect of Judaism rather than their own thing. Um, but starting around the late first century, the Jews started to try to distance themselves from the Christians. They wanted nothing to do with Christ or his followers. Um, and they saw it as a protecting of their heritage, of their Judaism, of their God. Um, Christians considered themselves to be the true Jews because they were following the man they believed to be the fulfillment of all the, of all the prophecies that came before um, so yeah the, the 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 Jews had started persecuting the Christians they were turning them in they were lying about them they were slandering them um, and this just added to the already existent per, uh, persecution due to emperor worship um, one thing we do know just outside of the Bible about Smyrna is um, that sort of gives us a little look into how hard it was for Christians in Smyrna at the time is um, it's recorded in the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was the bishop of Smyrna. And he was actually uh, ordained and anointed by John, who wrote Revelation, as the bishop. So we have a record of him being martyred for his faith, and it took place about 50 years after Revelation took place. Um, and this, rec- this record of the martyrdom itself, it, it gives us an insight into not only how strong the persecution really was, but also uh, it gives us a glimpse into the hearts of the, uh, the believers in Smyrna. It gives us a glimpse into how they responded to the persecution. Um, so Polycarp was an elderly man when he was turned in. Uh, he was given the option of cursing the name of Jesus and living uh, or confessing Jesus as Lord and dying. And since it's a martyrdom, you, you know what he did. Uh, he's, he's famously quoted as saying, 86 years have I served Christ and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So after that, they burned him alive. Um, and this was the sort of thing that was just commonplace for believers in this city. Um, they just had a constant threat of, of death and imprisonment that just hung over their heads uh, just for following Christ. So that's the two. That's who this letter is written to. It's written to this church full of just believers uh, who are constantly just feeling it from all sides, you know. And uh, so the from... All of these letters are written by Jesus, but he, he identifies himself in a very unique way to each church, a way that sort of uh, lets them know that uh, he's sort of with them in their, whatever their circumstances are. So in, in verse 8, it says, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So Jesus could have just jumped right into the body of the letter Uh, started talking to him about their trials, their tribulation, but uh, he chose a very special way to identify himself for them. Um, And and his identification, as you saw, is twofold. He identifies himself as the 
first and the last, and the one who uh, died and came to life. Um, so the first one, him saying he's the first and the last, that just had to have a tremendous effect on the, the local body of believers in Smyrna as they first heard these words. Um, because they're, they're just suffering. They're in the middle of this, these extreme circumstances. And here's Jesus saying, you're about to hear from me, the person who is sovereign over all of history. I was there well before these circumstances started. I'll be there well before after, or well after they end. Um, and it just communicates his sovereignty over the entire situation, over the entire world, as well as over each individual believer's life. Um, the second one is Jesus identified himself as the one who died and came to life. The believers in Smyrna were just always under that pressure of uh, wondering whether or not they would be caught, they would be turned in, they would uh, be put to death. And here's Jesus saying, nope, I conquered death. I, I died, I came to life. Um, not only did I conquer it, but I conquered it for you. Um, and it also just communicates Jesus relating to them. Uh, he's saying, you know, I've, I've, I've been put to death. I've been persecuted. I suffered for the sake of God. And y'all are doing the same thing. Um, and I know exactly how to minister to you in this time because I've been through it. Um, so he's the first and the last. Complete sovereignty. And he's the one who died and came to life, who conquered death. Um, so that's who's writing this. He's writing to the Smyrnaean believers and, and just telling them, you know, the words that follow this, they're coming from me. They're coming from a person who can relate to you, who has complete control and knowledge and wisdom over your circumstances. The next section in each letter will be the evaluation. And here Jesus will sort of just say what he knows about, about the churches that he's writing to. In verse 9 he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So his, his knowledge here, his evaluation comes in three parts. Um, he knows the tribulation that they're going through. Um, and this is referring directly just to the general persecution that they're suffering through. Um, the word for tribulation here literally means oppression. So as these Christians are facing persecution, they're also being forced to live oppressed and marginalized lives as a result of that persecution. The second thing he knows is their poverty. Um, this stands out because Smyrna was such a wealthy city. Um, it's unknown what truly made them impoverished, uh, but a lot of scholars just agree that the poverty came from the persecution. It was a result of that, uh, whether it be sanctions for not worshiping Caesar or from, uh, you know, being just so marginalized and pushed out to the edges of society that they just lose everything. Um, it's not clear, but we do know that they were just facing extreme poverty and were looked down on. Um, the Greek here for poverty 
it sort of refers to um, a person having the same kind of dignity as a as a uh, beggar. So we get the picture that not only are they poor material materialistically, but they're also poor in that um, no one wants anything to do with them. No one wants uh, them around. They don't want to be seen with them. So they're marginalized in all aspects. Um, however, even though Jesus says, I know your poverty, he also says, but you are rich. Um, so they're poor in the most worldly sense of the word, but within the kingdom of God, Jesus is looking at them and saying, you're rich. You, you are the wealthy in the kingdom of God. Um, and, and those words had to be comforting as well, knowing who they came from. Uh, in the same way, I'm sure that the Sermon on the Mount was comforting to a lot of the people in the audience there. So the third and final thing Jesus knows is that the Christians in Smyrna are being slandered by the Jews. Um, So the Jews in this period were pretty much doing anything to just separate themselves uh, from, from the church. And they saw themselves as the true children of God because of their uh, genealogical heritage and the fact that they were uh, descendants of Abraham. And that was the basis behind them believing they were the true children of God. However, Christians believed themselves to be the true Jews um, because of their spiritual heritage. Um, they no longer meant or it no longer mattered what family you were born into. Um, Rather, they saw themselves as born again into the spiritual family of Christ uh, once they started trusting in the redeeming work that he did on the cross. So there was this conflict here of who was the true religion, um, and it led to the Jews just trying to push away as much as possible. So Jesus is looking at this conflict And saying, these people that slander you, who lie about you, who accuse you, uh, they say they are Jews, but they are not. Um, And he's recognizing that even though they come from the lineage of Abraham, they're rejecting him. So they're not truly saved. They're not truly the children of God anymore because he is the fulfillment of all those prophecies that they grew up learning about, they grew up knowing, yet they still reject him. Um, So Jesus goes on to say that the Jewish slander against Christ's followers and the attempts to excuse it by saying they're protecting the religion um, and heritage places them more in the camp uh, as Satan than as God. He says they are a synagogue of Satan. And pretty much he's saying these these actions that they're doing... um, there's nothing godly about them. They're, they're more so agents of Satan than they are of God's uh, true workers, true children. Um, and he's not saying every synagogue was a synagogue of Satan. Um, I just want to make that clarification. There were certain Jews that were targeting Christians and lying and cheating them and just uh, turning them in. And he's tar- he's talking about these specific Jew- these specific Jews. Um, the next section 
in the letter is the solution um, or the exhortation. Uh, and after sort of evaluating, Jesus is looking into their circumstances and saying, okay, here's what you need to do next. He says in verse 10, do not, be, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I'll give you the crown of life. And when I, when I tried to put myself in the place of the, Smyr- the Smyrnaian uh, Christians here, I imagine like after Jesus was sort of looking at their situation and being like, I know this is happening to you. I know this is happening to you. I know your life is just terrible right now. I can imagine they were sort of anticipating a, but I'm going to come and fix it. But here he says, you're about to be thrown into jail. (laughs) You're about to be tested. You are going to suffer more persecution. Um, And one part of it is like, I don't want to hear that. How can you tell me to not fear when I am going to experience this amplified even more? I thought it was already bad enough. Um. But he still delivers that news. More persecution is going to follow. And it seems pretty ridiculous that he would say, do not fear. Um, but we go back to who's speaking them. Um, they're from the mouth of, of the Savior, the person they're suffering for to begin with. He's saying, do not fear. He knows exactly how it's going to play out. Uh, he is the first and the last. Um, And he's telling his followers to not fear what's happening and what will happen and to just be faithful unto death, implying that some of them will die for their testimony. And this is the same Jesus who was faithful unto his own death. So he has uh, the credentials to sort of command this of them. Uh, he, He is now calling his followers to join with him in suffering, to to uh, be faithful through the persecution just as he was. Um, And these Christians, while it's uncomforting to read something like this, they could still find comfort in the fact uh, that it was Jesus that is telling them this, simply by remembering who it is that's talking here. Um, So the the next section typically would be a warning uh, in almost all the letters we're going to walk through, there's a warning that follows the solution or the exhortation. And, uh, but in this letter, there is no warning. Um, this is one of only two letters in the series that we'll go through that doesn't have any warning or any rebuking in it. Um, Jesus typically would say, Um, this is what you're doing right, and then this is what I have against you. But here he just goes straight through. He, it's more of a letter of encouragement than anything else. Um, and in my research, I couldn't find anything that actually commented on that. Uh, so I have my own theories. They may or may not be right. Uh, but yeah, so one possible reason I think it, it could be that because of persecution, you didn't really have a choice to be apathetic, to be lukewarm, to uh, 
to just passively follow Jesus. You had to be all in or all out. Um, and, and this letter is more written to the true church of Smyrna in that they were all in. They were proclaiming the name of Christ, uh, and they were dying for it. Um, and then another possibility, I think, is that this is a short, just isolated message from Jesus to this church. Um, and in full sovereignty and wisdom, he's looking at their circumstances and choosing just to encourage them. Uh, there's no doubt that the people within the church of Smyrna were imperfect. There's no doubt that they messed up. But with all the things that they're going through, Jesus could just be looking in and saying they need encouragement right now more than anything. Um, and we see this all throughout his ministry on earth, too. He would, uh, any, any uh, dialogue you see in the Gospels with his disciples or bystanders or people who come to him, he targets exactly what they need to hear and tells them it. Um, whether it's hard to hear, whether it's encouraging, whether it's a rebuke, whether it's all of that together, um, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, he knows exactly what his followers need to hear when they hear it. So that could be another reason. Um, he's simply encouraging, even though he could target some imperfections or things they're doing wrong. Um, but whatever the reason for there being no rebuke and warning in this letter, we can trust that Jesus excluded it um, for a perfect and holy reason. And what he did include is there for also a perfect and holy reason. Um, so, yeah, there's no warning. <laughs> it's a pretty positive letter, even though it's probably a harsh letter for them to hear. Um, but compared to a lot of the other letters we'll be reading, it's pretty positive. Uh, so the next one, the next section would be the promise. Um, I'm going to start again with be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So here Jesus is promising the crown of life, and he's promising protection from the second death. Um, to Those two things are promised to the one who conquers, to the one who stays faithful, to the one who pretty much just holds fast to Jesus through the persecution. Um, so the crown of life would be, at the time, if you heard that term, it would most likely be associated with uh, the pagan goddess Cybel or the pagan god uh, Bacchus. And they were known for wearing these garland of flowers, and the people who would worship them would wear them as well. Um, so to hear the crown of life um, and compare it to this crown that these pagan gods have, that would perish away. Um, to hear that they would be granted, the Smyrnan believers would be granted the crown of life that is imperishable, that would never fade away. Um, to those who are faithful to him, it had to be a strong message. Um, just that if they are faithful unto death, if they make the ultimate sacrifice to their God, that they will be granted that imperishable crown of life and uh, eternal life with their Savior, that's just strong. Um, the other thing is the second death. It was pretty well known that that meant 
that the judgment following your death, um, and it would be the eternal judgment of the person after they physically die. So your physical death would be your first death. The eternal judgment would be the second one. And for, the, for a body of believers who were constantly threatened with death, who probably knew that they would die sooner rather than later, to know that that first death was just momentary uh, and just sort of a doorway into an entire new life with their Savior that they were dying for um, and that they spent their life proclaiming, uh, that had to be comforting as well. Um, And that's just walking through the six sections. That's what we've got here. I've got one of the shorter passages with just four verses. Um, And it's mostly positive in its tone. Um, But here we have a church who is very different from the church that, uh, just the American church today, their circumstances are very different. We are not constantly under a threat of death. We are not persecuted um, nearly in the same intensity that they are, um, if at all. Um, All over the world, I'm sure there are churches that hold on to these passages and uh, apply it to their life, uh, just holding on to the promise of the crown of life and eternal life with their Savior. Um, But for us, I think the application is a little more subtle. Um, The truth is we don't face that kind of persecution. The call to be faithful unto death cannot be applied to our lives in the American church in the same way that it can as it was in Smyrna or wherever uh, the underground churches are and they're being persecuted. Um, However, Jesus' call to be faithful unto death and to not fear our circumstances remains the same for all believers, no matter the circumstances. Um, so no matter if you're a Christian just working a 9-to-5 job in some American city or if you're working in a prison camp somewhere else for being a Christian, um, these calls remain relevant to our lives. For most of the Christians in Smyrna, the call to remain faithful unto death meant literally dying as a martyr. Um, For most of us, it will just mean living an obedient life until we die. Uh, Because a lot of us, our lives aren't going to be taken from us for worshiping God. Um, So being faithful unto death for us may look like being faithful unto 100 years, you know, It could be a short life or a long life. Either way, the call remains the same. And I think for us to follow by this call, it comes down to our contentment in Christ, uh, no matter the circumstances. In America, we're sort of trained to be entitled or have an entitled mindset um, to think, okay, I can have whatever I want as long as I work hard, or I deserve whatever I want. But as Christians, we're being called to have the same mindset as David. Um, when he, In Psalm 23, he just, he knows that there's nothing else he needs. Like he could want things, but ultimately there's no satisfaction in those because the Lord is his shepherd. Um, no matter the circumstances, if he's walking through the valley of death, 
um, or if he's experiencing utter bliss. There's nothing more he could want. Um, We're called to be like Paul, who in Philippians, uh, just throughout, he writes about how he learned to be content. Um, He says to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says, no matter if there's plenty or hunger, um, I've learned that to be content is only possible through Christ who strengthens him. So how do we get to this place in a church or in a era of church where so much so much of the time just apathy is the regular uh, the norm and that I think is a big challenge um, but while we don't face the threat of death uh, we still live in a broken world the world around us here even though we are incredibly blessed to be able to freely practice um, following Christ the world is still broken. We have broken relationships. There's abuse, loss of jobs, loss of financial security, um, just uncertainty and fear and anxiety about the future. Um, All of this is just evidence of the broken world that we live in. And if we take the world's advice in approaching those things, we would just be anxious all the time. We would worry all the time. But Jesus is looking into our circumstances. He's, he's telling us not to fear. Um, he's the voice of the first and the last. He was here long before we were worried about our finances. He'll be here long after. Um, and he's still in control, even if everything seems to be spinning out of control. So this is, I think, an easy thing to hear on a Sunday and then just sort of forget about on Monday through Saturday. So I think I've sort of broken it down into two things that I hope help us push into this to truly pursue contentment in Christ. Um, And hopefully these things can be uh, practical enough to be practiced and help foster that sense of contentment within you. Um, First, I think we need to slow down and just remember who Jesus is. Um, For the Christians in Smyrna, they needed to hear that he was the first and the last, the one who came, or the one who died and came back to life. Um, Sometimes our circumstances will require us to rest in the fact that Jesus is a redeemer and he will restore the broken world. Other times we need to remember that Jesus has proclaimed that it is finished once and for all, and our sins are forgiven in our past no longer has a bearing on who we are. No matter what our circumstances are, Jesus um, knows exactly who you need him to be, and he fills that need. Um, So we need to remember who Jesus is, and that's done through digging into the Word, digging into the Bible, uh, just coming face-to-face with Christ every single day and just pushing in like that. Second, we need to remember what he has done for us and what he still will do for us. So in the life of the Christian, there are many examples of just how Jesus has saved and blessed us. And I know a big struggle with a lot of people is they don't think their story is exciting enough 
or they don't think it's dynamic enough or dramatic enough if he hasn't saved you from some big life-altering decision. But the fact is that if Jesus saved you, a miracle has occurred, um, and you've got to just press into that and rest in that. You were once dead, now you're alive. Um, And then add to that that he's completely committed to your own personal transformation and sanctification. And um, it's just incredible to know, to be able to look into my life, I know, and see where the Lord has been, even before I started following him, to pick out the evidences of his grace. Um, And we need to be doing that both personally and for like with each other. Uh, I think he's put us in community together so we can live lives with each other and point to those evidences and be like, look, that's the Lord in your life. There's his grace. Um, so the two things, remember who Jesus is. Remember what he has done for us and promises to do. Um, so if we were... Resting and remembering both of these things, uh, then I think our, our words at the end of our life will echo what Polycarp said. Um, he said, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So Polycarp spent 86 years serving the Lord, and through his faithful obedience, He learned in a very real way that Christ never lets you down or fails you. That led him to be obedient to the point of death. Through fear, he still remembered exactly who Jesus was and what he had done for him throughout his entire life. Um, and, And even when he was facing death, while he was tied to a stake, he was content enough in who his God was to be like, bring it you know that's all i've got um i hope you've gotten something out of this i pray that at the end of our lives we can all say the same thing polycarp said um so yeah the band can come back up um i'm gonna pray and then we're gonna respond in song just go for it guys sing it loud um yeah all right Father God, I just thank you for this opportunity. Um, It's truly humbling to be entrusted with your word and uh, given the privilege to try and proclaim it faithfully, Lord. And I just pray that your spirit just fills the room and and just, just covers the seeds of truth in our hearts, Lord. Um so that they may grow and uh, just flourish. Uh, Whatever truth was proclaimed tonight, Lord, I just pray that it's not left in this room. I pray that um, everyone, all my brothers and sisters in this room, just take it with them. They talk about it. They process through it, Lord, Um, that, that they can truly hear from you and, and truly start to learn, uh, to either be content in you or learn to be more and more content with every faithful and obedient step they take. Um, Thank you for your son. 
for the sacrifice he made on the cross for us, um, that we can even do something like this, that we have a reason to gather, Lord, that we have a reason to praise your name. Um, And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.